Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, it's the opposite of a love story. We're going to learn about the rule of King Henry VIII of England as he divorces his way into forming the Church of England. We'll also learn a bit about the rest of his time as King of England, but it's mainly going to be about the man, his six wives, and the Anglican Church. I'm sure most people can name at least one of Henry's wives, most likely Anne Boleyn, but all of these women were important to history and their names must be known. Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard, and Catherine Parr. Along the way, we'll learn a bit about divorce and its history. Depending on what time period you lived in and where in the world you lived during this time, the rules on divorce, be they political or religious laws, could be very different. So I guess this is also a great time to say that, hey, if you're not super jazzed about listening to stuff about divorce, this probably isn't the episode for you. Come back next time, we're going back to Rome again, it'll be fun. And if you don't like Rome, come back for the one after that, it's a holiday special. Anyway, Henry's actions will ultimately throw England into a direction that will completely separate it from its Catholic neighbors. We've got a lot of ground to cover and a whole cast of historical figures to introduce. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to England of the 16th century in He Loves Me, He Loves Me Not. <laughs> history lesson for this episode, let's talk about the history of divorce, and eventually we'll also talk about the history of the Christian church in England. The oldest known laws over divorce can be traced back to the Code of Hammurabi, one of the oldest sets of laws in the world, though by no means the oldest, dating back to Babylon in the 18th century BCE. According to the law of Hammurabi, a man could simply walk up to his wife and say, you are no longer my wife. And that was it. Straight to the point and completely legal. Divorce was also common in ancient Greece. You had to actually file a report to a magistrate requesting the divorce, for which there had to be a good reason, but the odds were in your favor that your divorce was going to go through. In the Roman Republic, divorce was less common but still relatively easy to settle out as long as the two parties involved in the marriage agreed. By the time it turned into an empire, marital divorce became even easier to achieve. If you've listened to my episodes over Augustus, you get it. But that all changed when Rome started to become a Christian nation under Emperor Constantine in the 4th century CE. Under the laws of the new religion, divorce was now a societal taboo. However, the Christian world was not always a stranger to accepting rules of divorce. Obviously, Christianity has its roots tied to Judaism, in which, depending on the type of Judaism you follow, divorce is for the most part accepted as long as the proper channels are followed. In the Bible, Jesus even acknowledges that Moses said it was alright for a man to divorce his wife. The early Christian church, though, only accepted a divorce on the grounds of adultery. The only way to properly end a marriage in the Christian church was through an annulment. And that's how things still are in the Catholic Church. Obviously, things are different when it comes to the Protestant denominations, but we're not at that point yet. 
But let's start on the path to the Protestant Reformation, especially as it pertains to England. We don't know who the first Christians were on the island of Britain. Christianity had been in the Roman Empire ever since it first existed considering most of the early Christians were Roman citizens. And people from all across the Roman world found themselves in Roman Britain. However, most historians think that the religion probably first reached English shores somewhere in the 2nd or early 3rd centuries. By the end of the 4th century, when Rome officially became Christian, the population of Britain was also Christianized. Things took a dip when Rome collapsed and left Britain to fend for itself against the Germanic tribes like the Angles and Saxons. The Anglo-Saxons of Britain had their own form of polytheism they worshipped, but that too would decline after Christianity was reintroduced during the 7th century CE. The main religious hub of England during this time was the Archdiocese of Canterbury. As the medieval period continued, England's relationship with Christianity began to develop its own sense of a separatist movement. While most of the other Christian nations of Europe followed the laws of Rome, including having Rome appoint their bishops and other religious leaders, those types of appointments in England were chosen by the king. Of course, Rome was upset by this, but nothing ever really changed. The only time Rome ever really put its foot down with England was when Pope Innocent III excommunicated King John in 1209 over the king's refusal to nominate Innocent's choice to Archbishop of Canterbury. This animosity that had been softly boiling up between England and Rome would continue for the next few centuries until one man, a king who had once seemed like a defender of the Roman Church, decided that maybe it would just be better if England and Rome had their own divorce. Henry VIII was born in June of 1491 to King Henry VII and his wife Elizabeth of York. He was the second son of the king and one of the couple's few children to survive past infancy. Henry VII was the first king of House Tudor after defeating King Richard III of the Plantagenet dynasty in the War of Roses, a major series of wars in England that we'll cover in a future episode, I promise. As the second son of the family, the future Henry VIII was raised with the assumption that he would take up a position within the church, the Catholic Church. So Henry was tutored to become a highly educated young man because men of the cloth were raised to be smarter than the kings and other royals. This path in his early childhood led Henry to become incredibly intelligent and very much in love with the Catholic Church. Let's quickly talk about his older brother, Arthur. Spoiler alert, he won't be in the story for much longer so we can get this over with ASAP. Henry VII was looking to secure an alliance with the Spanish royals, Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile. The pair were married and had a daughter who was about the same age as Arthur, Catherine, aka Catherine of Aragon. Hey, didn't we hear that name earlier? Wonder what's gonna happen there. Henry VII and the Spanish royals agreed to cement an alliance through the future marriage of their two children considering both were still toddlers when this alliance was formed. The future alliance would ensure protection of both nations from France, both sides' historic nemesis. It wasn't until 1501, when Arthur and Catherine were 15 years old, that the pair were married. 
After almost immediately moving to Wales, the newly led couple contracted some form of serious illness, maybe tuberculosis or the plague. Catherine would eventually recover from the illness, but the heir apparent of the English throne did not. In 1502, Prince Arthur passed away. King Henry VII was worried about what this meant for his future prospects with Spain. What was he supposed to do? His son had died. Wait, didn't he have another one of those lying around somewhere? And so Henry VII approached younger Henry and changed his future forever. First off, Henry was now the heir to the English throne. Second, he would be marrying his older brother's widow. Yeah, the future Henry VIII was only 10, so that would have to wait for a while, but it would happen. Now, as a man of God, younger Henry would have known what the Bible said about marrying your brother's widow. It was illegal in the Catholic Church. Younger Henry rode with that idea and told his father he wasn't too keen on marrying Catherine. Henry VII was having none of that and asked Catherine's mother if they could figure something out. Isabella of Castile decided to take things directly to the top and she met with the current Pope, Alexander VI. Psst, I covered that guy in this show. Listen to the episode over Rodrigo Borgia. I think it's pretty good. Pope Borgia decided to okay this new relationship because Queen Isabella convinced him that Arthur and Catherine had never actually consummated their marriage, which was probably a lie. Though Henry was initially hesitant about offending God by marrying Catherine, he had plenty of time to warm up to his future wife. For the next seven years, Catherine just sort of hung out around in England because her father ordered her to live there, meaning Henry was able to get to know her and eventually develop feelings for her. Henry VII died in 1509, leaving the throne to the younger Henry. Over the previous few years, due to various factors pertaining to his mental health and history being history when it comes to that topic, Henry VII had made himself into one of the most hated men in the country. Yay, vilifying mental illness. On the opposite side of things, younger Henry had been doing everything to make himself extremely likable. He was smart, he wrote songs, he threw expensive parties. Everyone was excited to have him as the new king. A couple weeks after Henry VII was buried, Henry VIII announced he would have Catherine of Aragon as his queen. The pair were married and Henry was crowned soon afterwards. They were in love, Henry was expected to be a great king, and everything seemed to be going just fine. <laughs> Yeah, things were going great for a while. Henry continued to throw parties, he gave away money and positions of power just like every other medieval king before him. Sure, that would eventually become a problem, but it was all good right now. The only blight on Henry's record was that he lacked an heir to the throne, specifically a male heir. Catherine and he had conceived several children within the first few years of their marriage, but those children had either been stillborn or died in their infancy. Henry decided to take his mind off of things by engaging in one of England's favorite medieval pastimes, invading France. Along the way, he sought to expand his posse of allies by getting Emperor Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire to fight against France. Charles was Catherine's nephew, so the familial ties were already there. 
Things got a bit complicated where Charles would agree to help with fighting against France, but was conveniently never there to actually lend a hand. Meanwhile, back in Britain, Scotland decided to take advantage of Henry being gone to wage war against England in 1513. The King of Scotland was James IV, the brother-in-law of Henry via his sister Margaret. When Henry left for France, he left Catherine in charge as defender of the realm and leader of the army. Though she was pregnant at the time, Catherine had the English army mobilized and led them against James IV and his army. Scotland was defeated at the Battle of Flodden Fields, and James IV was killed. Catherine then sent part of his bloodied robes to her husband so he could use it as a battle standard in France. A few years later, in 1516, Catherine gave birth to her only child who would survive into adulthood, a daughter named Mary. Even though Henry had been hoping for a son, he figured he could use Mary to help further secure his goals as a king. He arranged for Mary and Emperor Charles to be engaged, even though Charles was an adult and Mary was still very young. Charles initially agreed to this engagement. However, as Charles grew more powerful and actually succeeded in defeating the King of France when he finally decided to wage war, he felt like he could do better than marrying his cousin. And FYI, he would end up marrying another one of his cousins because that's how European monarchies work. Henry was furious. He was running out of money, he had failed to get France under his control, Catherine wasn't giving birth to any sons. None of this could possibly be his fault, right? I mean, one of his many mistresses had given birth to a son. He decided to place the blame on Catherine. After everything she had done for his nation, leading an army and making education for women more of a popular issue, Henry began to grow tired of his life with her. Maybe he could move on to that one lady-in-waiting Catherine had who he'd already been sleeping with. What was her name? Bolin? Yeah, Mary Bolin. After all, she'd had two children who might have actually been his. But wait, who was that? Mary had a younger sister, Anne Bolin. Well, maybe he could marry Anne. But first he'd have to divorce Queen Catherine. And unfortunately, the Catholic Church was there to stand in his way. As I mentioned earlier, Henry had grown up as basically the champion of the Catholic Church for the English royal family. Many of his close confidants were actually ranking members of the church in England. Heck, in 1521 he had written a religious treatise that had caused Pope Leo X to call Henry Fide Defensor. Defender of the Faith. It was just that whole dang thing about Catholicism not allowing divorce. So Henry would have to seek an annulment instead. It was around this time that Henry started going back to his teenage ways of thinking. His marriage must have been cursed from the start because he had married his brother's widow. Henry began seeking advice from one of his advisors, a cardinal named Thomas Wolsey. He asked Wolsey to skirt around the direct path and somehow find a way to get Pope Clement VII to accept Henry and Catherine's divorce. Well, Wolsey messed up and somehow Emperor Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire found out about Henry's desire to get with Anne Boleyn. Charles, as Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, had a non-insubstantial bit of control over the Pope, 
and he wasn't necessarily a fan of King Henry VIII anymore. Via his influence, Clement VII allowed, allowed in heavy air quotes, for Henry to start a divorce trial but did everything in his power to ensure that it was held up for as long as possible. Henry began to gather an inner circle of religious authorities that were loyal to him and not to the Pope. They eventually decided maybe staying with the Catholic Church wasn't actually a good idea. It also helped that Henry's desired new wife, Anne Boleyn, was said to have been pretty into that hip new religious movement called the Protestant Reformation. And also, Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, had said that maybe if divorce wasn't cool, Henry could just be a polygamist. Henry decided that Luther's idea was not the correct path to go down. And so, the one-time defender of the faith decided that it was time for England to start severing its ties to Rome. In 1531, Henry had Catherine banished from the palace. Okay, so it should be noted that Catherine refused to go away quietly during the several years that Henry was holding a divorce trial. Her associates advised her that it would be best to save face and just retire to become a nun. Catherine did not falter. She would remain queen for as long as possible. She and Henry had been married for over 20 years by this point. Maybe she hoped that somehow she could retain the position even if Henry wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. But alas, things did not go Catherine's way. The next year, in 1532, Henry and Anne were secretly married. Henry also had a friend of the Boleyn family instated as the Archbishop of Canterbury. The new archbishop issued a decree stating that Henry and Catherine of Aragon's marriage was officially null and void. Henry and Anne were then publicly married in early 1533, though it would be a few months before the archbishop legally pronounced them as husband and wife. Catherine was stripped of her title as Queen Consort of England. Anne Boleyn was now the new queen. Surely everything would go well, right? Let's talk a bit more about Anne Boleyn. She was the daughter of a more minor English courtier, but found herself positioned at a young age as a lady-in-waiting to King Henry VIII's younger sister, Mary Tudor, who Henry married off to the King of France, Louis XII. This meant that Anne spent much of her adolescence in France where she was given a good education within the royal palace. While in France, she befriended the king's cousin, Marguerite de Navarre. Marguerite was an author who was very interested in religious philosophy, and it was through this friendship that historians believe Anne developed her interest in the Protestant Reformation. Although these views were essentially heretical in Catholic France, Marguerite's position as a member of the extended royal family protected her. In the early 1520s, England and France were looking to go to war against each other again, so Anne decided it would be best for her safety to move back to England. It was when she was back in Britain that Anne became a lady-in-waiting, alongside her sister Mary, to Queen Catherine. At one point, she was arranged to be married to a man named Henry Percy, but the marriage was eventually called off. Not by Anne or Henry Percy, but by the king. Okay, so it was actually Cardinal Wolsey who refused to marry them, but his decision was most likely based on feedback from Henry VIII. We don't know when exactly Henry first decided he wanted to marry Anne, but we do know that Anne originally wanted nothing to do with the guy. 
Her sister had already been his mistress, and that didn't really seem to be all that great. By 1526, Henry was actively pursuing a relationship with Anne Boleyn, but she was still not keen on just being a mistress of the king. Among actual school subjects she had learned in France, Anne was also taught a more court-oriented version of seduction. She used these lessons to pursue a relationship with the king, but only if he would make her his queen. And thus began the troubles with Henry's divorce. Fast forward several years and Anne is now the Queen of England. She was actually the last queen ever to be crowned in a separate occasion from her husband. She was also crowned with the St. Edward's crown, a crown that is traditionally only used in the coronation of the actual monarch, not their spouse. The reason for this is that Anne was pregnant at the time of her coronation and everyone hoped slash assumed that the child was going to be a boy. Unfortunately for Henry and those hoping for a male heir, the child was a girl, and her name was Elizabeth. Very soon after Anne's marriage to Henry and her coronation, Pope Clement began the formal process of excommunicating Henry VIII. The Pope issued a papal order insisting that Catherine of Aragon was still the true Queen of England, and her marriage to Henry was still very much in place. Henry, in response, issued his own orders that the citizens of England were to swear religious fealty solely to the church in England, refusing the authority of Rome and acknowledging Anne Boleyn as the true Queen of England. Several members of Henry's court, including Sir Thomas More, Henry's former Lord Chancellor and the author of the book Utopia, were stripped of their titles and thrown into the Tower of London for the crime of heresy. By the end of 1534, the English Parliament had declared the king the only supreme head on earth of the Church of England. As with Catherine before, things originally seemed to be going smoothly between Henry and Anne, despite the fact that her first child had been a daughter and not a son. She would later suffer a miscarriage. Also, the behaviors that Anne was known for, her incredible intelligence and refusal to play the simple role of a submissive lady of the court, had been intriguing to Henry when he sought to make Anne his bride, but he soon grew tired of this once Anne was his wife. By the end of 1534, Henry was actually considering divorcing Anne. The couple went through several months of a strained relationship. But by 1536, the couple were seemingly happy again. And boy did 1536 start off with a bang. Catherine of Aragon had been sick for some time and she finally passed away in January of that year. Rumors persisted that either Henry or Anne had the former queen poisoned, but we now know that she most likely died from cancer of the heart. But back then people didn't know about that, so when it was discovered that Catherine's heart had actually turned a dark color, Mary, the daughter of Catherine, confronted Anne with the rumors. Mary had always disliked Anne, which shouldn't be too surprising. Also, in a really messed up turn, Anne and Henry decided to wear yellow clothes the day after Catherine's death. They said this was done out of mourning since yellow was the traditional color for mourning in Spain at the time, but... Uh, okay, the couple then threw festivals celebrating Catherine's death really messed up. To make matters worse, Henry was beginning to get a bit of pushback for his new religious reforms, especially when it came to the Suppression of Religious Houses Act. 
What was that? Well, it's also referred to as the Dissolution of Lesser Monasteries Act, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Remember how I kept on bringing up that Henry's reign was kinda not super hot when it came to finances? He eventually decided, as the new supreme head of the Church of England, that it was time to use that power over his new creation. Some people think he was influenced to enact this law by Anne due to her Protestant beliefs. To explain it simply, Henry had a bunch of monasteries and churches all across England shut down, and he took all of the money they had in relics and other offerings that he used to finance fancy parties, regular royal spendings, and eventual wars he was planning. The public's reaction to this new law was not great, and around 30,000 people banded together in what is known as the Pilgrimage of Grace. The angry citizens revolted against the king, who had no standing army to protect him. Henry brokered peace with the rebels, promising no harm would come to them if they just went back home. Well, Henry then turned around on this deal and had several hundred of the rebels beheaded. While Henry's favor was falling among the people of England, Anne's popularity was also in freefall within the court, especially with her husband. Also, in 1536, Henry was participating in a jousting tournament when he was knocked off his horse and was severely injured. Anne was pregnant at the time, but when the news of her husband's injury reached her, the shock caused Anne to suffer a miscarriage. So actually, this was technically Henry's fault, but he still blamed Anne for the loss of a potential male heir. Henry was thinking it was time for an annulment, but his advisors had another idea in mind. Something much more diabolical. Several men, among them Anne's brother George, were arrested on the charge of having relations with the Queen. Anne herself was also arrested for the alleged crimes of adultery and incest. Henry looked to the Archbishop of Canterbury, a man named Thomas Cranmer, who by the way was super anti-Anne Boleyn, to find a reason to annul the royal marriage. Archbishop Cranmer eventually decided upon the fact that Henry had been in a relationship with Anne's sister, despite the fact that they weren't married, so this presented a conflict of interest with his and Anne's marriage. The marriage was then annulled. With Anne no longer his wife, Henry ordered for her execution. On May 19, 1536, Anne, who had really done nothing wrong, was beheaded. Henry was officially becoming a tyrant in the eyes of the public, but the king himself was feeling pretty good. After all, he was on his way to wife number three, Jane Seymour. Jane had acted as a lady-in-waiting to Anne Boleyn before she was taken on as one of Henry's mistresses. So yeah, I should also say that it was legal for the king to have extramarital affairs, but not the queen. Like, everyone knew Henry was sleeping around. And most likely wasn't, though I wouldn't blame her for doing so. Anyway, Henry and Jane were married the day after Anne's execution, so that staying on point for Henry, gross as ever. Also, Henry was 45 when he married Jane, who was in her mid-twenties at the time. But let's learn a bit about the new Queen of England. Jane's family was not as prestigious as Catherine or Anne's, but she was still given some level of formal education. 
It's said that she excelled more in sewing and needlework than anything else, and that she may have taught some of that art to Henry. By as early as 1527, Jane was in the service of Catherine of Aragon. She then stuck around the court as an attendant to Anne. Henry took her up as one of his mistresses sometime in early 1536. It should also be noted that Jane was very Catholic, so it's bizarre that the now not-Catholic Henry would choose her as his new queen. Jane was known for being very polite and sympathetic to everyone from all walks of life. The public rallied to her side when Jane showed sympathy towards the late Catherine of Aragon and her daughter Mary, who was gathering a decent crop of followers among the citizens of England who were still loyal to the Catholic Church. The new queen was never crowned because the plague had resurfaced in London, where she would have been crowned had there not been a public health crisis. It's believed that Henry also didn't want Jane crowned until she gave birth to a son. Surprisingly enough, when Jane finally gave birth in October of 1537, her child was the son Henry always wanted, the future King Edward VI. However, it became abundantly clear that Jane was suffering from complications in Edward's birth. She died within a couple weeks after Edward was born. She was given a proper queen's funeral with the mourners led by her stepdaughter, Princess Mary. She was the only one of Henry's wives to be treated this way. He even wore black and mourned for the next three months. Henry's paranoia for his place in life began to grow despite the fact that he now had a male heir to continue the Tudor dynasty. Despite officially annexing Wales, Henry was worried about his place in Europe. He had somehow managed to maintain a friendship with France, but he was worried about Emperor Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire. However, when King Francis of France became buddies with Charles V, Henry decided England was no longer safe. He started building up defenses, financed by further monastery dissolutions, in the event that France and the HRE decided to jointly invade England. Oddly enough, Henry's advisors were not worried about a military invasion. Yeah, Henry had a son, but as King of England, Henry needed a queen. It took two years after Jane Seymour's death before Henry finally decided on a new wife, Anne of Cleves. Anne was born in Dusseldorf, today in modern-day Germany, but back then part of the Holy Roman Empire, to a noble family that was fairly aligned with the Protestant Reformation, but more importantly was opposed to the rule of Emperor Charles V. Henry's chief minister, Thomas Cromwell, had picked out Anne among several other young women as potential brides for his king. Thinking she would be a good match for the current global position of England, Henry went ahead and chose Anne. The story of Anne and Henry first meeting was said to solidify Henry's feelings towards the future of his relationship with her. When asked about his potential choice of wives, Henry demanded that portraits be painted of the woman and that the artist should not exaggerate their features in order to make them more attractive. It's said that Anne's portrait was still quite beautiful, so Henry had Anne brought from the HRE to England. Then, Henry came up with a wild idea of how to introduce himself to his future bride. Anne was put up in a room and she was looking out the window at a group of people taming bulls. Henry disguised himself and entered the room. 
and obviously not knowing who this man was, only briefly paid attention to him before returning to watch the Bulls. Henry was frustrated. How could Anne not tell it was him despite the fact that he was disguised? Also, he believed that Anne was not as attractive as her portrait. He returned to Anne in his regular royal clothing, to which she then recognized him as the king. But from that moment on, Henry realized this probably was not going to work out. The king even asked Thomas Cromwell to figure out a way to stop the marriage from happening, but Cromwell told the king that this would only endanger his unstable relationship with Germany. Regardless of Henry's feelings, the couple were married in January of 1540. On the night of the wedding, Henry decided not to consummate the marriage. But despite this, Anne would go on to say that Henry was a perfectly nice husband. For about half a year until Henry had her removed from the palace on June 24th. Two weeks later, Anne was informed that Henry was no longer into her and was considering having the marriage annulled. A bit later, when the actual annulment offer was brought to Anne, she agreed to it. Things were going surprisingly well now that the king and his former wife were no longer married. Anne was given several estates as part of the annulment settlement. And she and Henry remained very good friends. She would often be invited back to Henry's palace in London. Things were not going well, however, for Thomas Cromwell. Embarrassed by the fact that his fourth marriage had gone sour very quickly, Henry had Cromwell arrested on trumped-up charges of treason in June of 1540. He was condemned without trial, stripped of all his titles, and beheaded in late July. On the same day as Cromwell's execution, Henry married his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. She was a cousin of Anne Boleyn and the niece of the Duke of Norfolk, one of Cromwell's political enemies. Even though Catherine had caught the king's eye while his marriage to Anne of Cleves was falling apart, it's believed that Norfolk urged the king to get with his niece so that his family could gain back some of the power they'd amassed during Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn. On the day of their marriage, Henry was 49 and Catherine was still a teenager. I guess it should be pointed out that, starting with Anne of Cleves, the back half of Henry's six wives were all born after he was crowned as King of England. And yes, Catherine Howard is only wife five out of six, so guess how this one goes. To put it succinctly, Catherine was having a couple extramarital affairs with two men named Thomas Culpepper and Francis Derham. While Henry was away from London, his advisors discovered Catherine's affair with Derham. Archbishop Cranmer was brought in to lead an investigation into Catherine's infidelity. And again, I'll say, it's absolutely wild and unfair that the king was allowed to openly have affairs with other women, but it was utmost treason for his wife to sleep with other people. Henry originally didn't believe Catherine was cheating on him, but it was Derham who stepped forward and confessed to his affair with the queen. Henry was furious and stormed out of the palace to go on a hunting trip. Now, Catherine could have saved herself if she thought about how to turn this act of treason into a path towards an annulment. She could have lied and said she was supposed to marry Derham before she was married to the king, therefore making the marriage null. Nope. Instead, she just admitted to her relationship with Derham, but made it seem like Derham had forced her into the relationship. 
In retaliation for this slander, Deerham exposed the fact that Catherine had also been sleeping with Thomas Culpepper. Long story short, Henry had all three killed. He had only been married to Catherine Howard for two years. After Catherine's death, Anne of Cleves family stepped in and was like, eh, eh, why not remarry Anne? Henry quickly turned down this offer. The next year, 1543, Henry married his sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr. Yep, why not round things out with one more Catherine? Catherine Parr was a wealthy widow having previously been married to the Baron of Latimer. She was a strict follower of the Reformation which surprisingly brought her into quarrels over religion with Henry. You see, despite divorcing the Church of England from its relationship with Rome, Henry VIII's new Anglican religion was still pretty Catholic in the way it did things. You'd think this would strain the marriage and maybe cause Henry to have second thoughts. After all, he had divorced Anne of Cleves because he thought she wasn't pretty enough. Nope, the couple remained married. Also, Catherine Parr was the first Queen of England to also hold the title Queen of England and Ireland, as Henry had been digging his royal claws into Britain's western neighbor and subjugating the Gaelic people. You can find more about that in my episode over Grano O'Malley. Listen to that one. Catherine also managed to get Henry back in good standing with his daughters, who he had disinherited after his marriage to Jane Seymour. With Catherine's help, Henry brought Mary and Elizabeth back into the line of succession, which would prove to be very necessary in the future, though that's a topic for another episode. Henry died in 1547. Catherine Parr and he had remained married the entire time. His successor would be his son Edward, now King Edward VI. Henry was a vile man, incredibly misogynistic and power-hungry to a fault. He could have actually been a great king by medieval English king standards if he had just stayed in his lane and lived an unhappy marriage with Catherine of Aragon. I know it's bad to wish an unhappy marriage on someone, but it would have saved so many lives had Henry just thought with his head instead of what was in his pants. But here's an interesting thing to think about. I think many people unaware of the ins and outs of the Church of England would believe that it was founded with the idea of Catholicism, but divorce is okay. This is actually pretty far from the truth. Henry VIII's situation was far from ordinary and really only existed because he was the king. Divorce was basically illegal within the Anglican Church until the mid-19th century. Before then, you had to send a request to Parliament requesting a divorce. From the church's founding in 1532 until 1857, only 324 couples successfully petitioned for divorce. That's basically one couple every year out of who knows how many who actually sent in a request. And even until the late 20th century, divorce was still seen as a bit of a taboo. Sure, you could get a divorce, but just don't talk about it. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're once again in Rome with the Julio-Claudian saga. 
We're about to reach a turning point in the reign of Emperor Tiberius, but let's take a step back to learn about another member of the Julio-Claudian family, Tiberius's nephew-slash-adopted son Germanicus. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, whoa, whoa.